Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The pod that strikes only twice a week, unlike British trains. I'm Ros Taylor. On today's show, don't vape, don't smoke, put down your dangerous dog. Why does our government love banning things so much? And do Britons care? What can Labour actually do about the housing crisis? We're joined by award-winning housing journalist Peter Apps to get into it all. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, good news, the price of tea has stopped rising. But do we even take tea breaks anymore? Before we start, we should probably meet the panel. Hannah Fern is a journalist and our resident housing expert. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Ros. It's nice to not be the only housing journalist in the room today. <laughs> Royal Mail may deliver post only three days a week. Is that maybe quite sensible or is it just another nail in the coffin for broken Britain? Well, I think it's quite sensible. I expect a lot of people, uh, sort of, I guess, 60 and under will think it's very sensible. Um, there was somebody asking, I think it was the BBC uh, on social media, would you care if you lost your daily delivery? And honestly, the answer for me is, is no. And I think about 70% of the population will feel the same. But I do care that it's done properly and carefully with a consultation that engages the entire population and real preparation for people who are digitally excluded. If you think about what's happened with parking apps, my fear is that we'll end up in a situation where a, a bunch of people can't access a service that they really need because they've been shoved out of, you know, the, the digital future. And uh, it, yeah, it worries me that we'll, we'll see people really feeling um, excluded, frustrated and left behind. Yeah, I don't want to wait longer for my weekly magazines, I must admit. Because there's about two or three that come out at the end of each week, and I don't want to wait till Monday for well, them. Well, that's a good point. So, People are going to have to start changing their publication days. Yeah, and I, I'd let's start worrying about journalism. That's definitely what this is about, Ros. <laughs> exactly, and I, I don't want to read them on an app. I'm sorry, but I just don't. Marie Leconte is a columnist and author. Hi, Marie. Hello. You've been in Venice. Um, I'm jealous. What did you get up to? Um, well, so when I lived there for a bit two years ago, uh, the museum closest to my house was the Academia. Uh, so naturally, because that's the way these things go, I never went to the Academia when it was on my doorstep. So this time I thought, you know what, I should probably go. And yet it turns out it's very nice. Um, but no, I, I feel like the most thing um, I, I discovered in Venice this time around uh, was a word called caigo, which is the Venetian word for fog. So it's not even Italian, very specific Venetian dialect for fog. Um, because my God, the caigo uh, was out in force when I was there. I went to... <laughs> watch Venezia FC play, which is a kind of tradition I'd picked up when I lived there. Um, and, we, and my friend and I so could not see the pitch. So we could not. So we could just about see the goalkeeper. We could not see the halfway line. There was a weird chant where people were asking the goalkeeper, essentially, what's going on? Tell us what's going on because we can't see. Um, so, so that was very silly. Um, but no, no, it, it was very good. I, I drank much Prosecco. Um, I uh, talked to many Italians and uh, had a lovely time. Thank you. It sounds like one of those spot the ball competitions you used to get in newspapers where you there was a picture of a, <laughs> some football that. players and you had to guess where the football was. Now, honestly, there were, it nearly felt like a sort of like fantasy cartoon at times. So especially when you know like the, the goalkeeper was like hoof the ball away and it would just be eaten by the fog and be like, oh, they're gone again. Maybe we'll see them again at some point. Who knows? You're also excited about the new pharmacy rules, aren't you? Uh, yes, I, I, I think that's one of the ways in which Britain uh, Britain is finally becoming more continental European. Um, so I believe that, which I think is a genuinely good policy. The government is uh, now allowing pharmacists to do more, essentially. So I think it's uh, handing out more prescriptions for a lot of co like more common ailments that are not that hard to diagnose, which I think is very good. And actually, is, yeah, as it happens in Venice, I was having that chat with friends. It's, you know, in 
country like Italy and France and stuff, you do really have a genuine relationship with your father. Like your, your family pharmacist is really a person that's kind of a part of your life, uh, which I would argue is actually quite a good thing on a number of levels. So, you know, I'm, for once, I'm going to be like very pro a thing the government is doing. Do you wait till you have to go in and ask for repeated worm and knit treatments? <laughs> <laughs> then you have a different relationship with your pharmacist. <laughs> And our guest this week is Peter Apps, journalist for Inside Housing and author of the Orwell Prize winning Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Oh, thanks for having me. And we'll be talking to you later in depth about housing. First up on today's show, disposable vapes, XL bullies, nitrous oxide. This government is keen on banning things. Liz Truss says it's unconservative. Is she right? Is this kind of low-level authoritarianism sensible, or is it just a substitute for real politics? Marie, you've been working on your vaping habit, I think, Um, and you're also in your early 30s, Mm. and I think old enough to decide how much nicotine you want to ingest. How do you feel about the ban on disposables? Because until recently, some health experts were keen on vapes as an alternative to tobacco, Mm. but now they're apparently incredibly bad. Uh, God, I can't believe I'm like twice in five minutes on this podcast specifically, I'm going to really come out and defend Rishi Sunak. (laughs) I think for me, it's just such an obvious idea to ban disposable vapes, because I think the main thing is disposable vapes were not meaningfully a thing until what? So about two, three years ago at most. So God, I I first, because I've been smoking for, I smoked for many happy years. um, And then I quit once and started vaping, then got smoking again, then uh, vaped again. So I'm I'm, I'm kind of very much a kind of a vaping elder in the community. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you know, and I feel like for, for the longest time, you would just buy a reusable vape, which you charge on your laptop, and that's fine. And then you occasionally have to buy uh, you know, parts to replace. But then apart from that, you just buy some liquid and you put it in. And that's that. You know, that, that was always the thing. And again, like kids, crucially, like kids and teens and people who didn't smoke anyway, never took up reusable vapes because they looked very ugly. Like I kind of looked like snogging an ink cartridge uh, for many years. Even now I've got one that's marginally better, but it still looks like I'm yeah kissing a USB stick, uh, which is weird. Um, so, so, so no, I think, you know, that, that, that worked entirely well as a system, but then the market was like, but it kind of sucks that children are not addicted to nicotine. What can we do to change that? And so they they invented the A, very strong. So they're so full of nicotine, that very strong, very colorful, really fun sort of little um, disposable vapes and created the situation we have now, which means that actually lots of, again, non-smokers started, like took up vaping and lots of very young kids got really into it as well. So no, no, I think it's it's a completely right idea. It still works as a quitting aid, but but it's it's not fun. I think vaping was never meant to look fun and it's possible to have too much nicotine isn't it it's quite possible uh it is i feel like i've definitely been giving it a good go for the past 15 years um but yeah no no but i think more seriously like it is that like the, the single use vapes you buy like tend to have the highest possible amount of nicotine that is legal to put in a thing which doesn't feel great when people don't know about that and again you know they may not have smoked previously etc so yeah no no very pro they're bad they're just obviously bad and all of that is before you even get to the environmental impact oh god yeah no, no, it's meant to mention, yeah because yeah. like they're all like lithium batteries which technically like, it is infuriating so all uh single use vapes have a lithium battery that technically could be reusable but they've just not put the tech so they've not put a usb charger thingy etc so you just throw it away and that's that so it is immensely bad for the environment quite often they end up exploding as well so people throw them in the bin and then you know that gets put in massive tons of waste and then yeah they catch fire which is horrible like it's yeah also just unbelievably bad for the environment so like complete no-brainer again i'm yeah i've got my pro rishi sunak t-shirt here like you know (laughs) Um, yeah, it says ban vaping. Actually, it's got a Dalmatian on it, but you know, it would say ban vaping. Yeah. Um, there are bans that limit harms to other people, like mm. you know, smoking inside or XL bullies. And there are bans that aimed at stopping people from harming themselves. And even if those two overlap quite a bit in practice, mm. it's a helpful distinction when you're deciding how much to limit people's personal freedom. Banning disposable vapes and the plan to stop anyone over 14 ever legally buying a cigarette again Mm. are trying to stop them from harming themselves. Is it really the job of politicians to do that? Environmental worries aside. I'm hmm, I'm not convinced that it is, but also I, I, I would put those two things, I think, in, sep- like in, in different categories where I think, again, banning single-use vapes um, for me is not exactly the same as saying, you know, let's say to current 14-year-olds, you'll never be able to buy a cigarette because, again, they, they can still just buy a reusable vape and that's fine. It would kind of 
like the equivalent would probably be to tell tobacco manufacturers you cannot, even if you manage to nail the technology, you cannot make pink cigarettes that taste of candy floss. And but I do think yeah, the difference, which is why like, I'm again very pro uh, banning single use vapes, but very against actually banning people smoking is that also stuff like taxing cigarettes heavily like that works that that is essentially why i think most people quit smoking so i think you know making cigarettes very expensive and making it very inconvenient to be a smoker but keeping it legal like just strikes me as the obvious like perfect line between again the state intervening and the state still having a stake in people's lives and also the state of the nhs etc but also while respecting people's ability to make choices for themselves, even though those choices are harmful. Like that, that struck me as the perfect balance, so I have no idea why he decided to go that one step further. Yeah, eventually, of course, they're going to have to work out how to replace those sin taxes mm. if they do persuade people to stop buying cigarettes. Mm. Sunak is a remarkably clean-living PM. He doesn't drink. He does a 36-hour fast every week, apparently, from Sunday evening to Tuesday morning, though apparently he makes up for it during the rest of the week by binging on Gale cinnamon buns. Um, is it easier to ban things when you have that kind of self-control yourself? Ooh, I'm going to go yes, but I think that, that that's probably a wider thing, isn't it? Where lots and this is going to be one of those annoying things where I can't come up with an example as I talk. But 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 you know, but I think there's lots of stuff where politicians will always find it a lot easier to ban something or hard enough to think about something if they're not you know touched by it at all. Which is why there's the argument quite often of saying, oh, we need politicians from like non-traditional backgrounds, etc., because actually that's the only way they can do policy making in a way that works. So I think yeah, no, I I quite I think that that may be my thesis. Yeah, we, we shouldn't have a nerd prime minister because he's just gonna like he doesn't even really understand the appeal of the fun stuff. <laughs> so he's a bit like. Yeah, of course you should. <laughs> so so going, well, yeah, of course we have to ban it because why would people even smoke when it's a bit like, okay, but that's not, again, that's not conducive to good, I think. You like shrewd policy making that like you have to understand where people are coming from. You wouldn't get that with Johnson, would you? I mean, the guy is fundamentally incontinent. I mean, I mean, not literally, but in terms of his personal pleasures, it's a very different vibe with Sunak. It is, it is. And with kind of like trust in the middle, there's like some weird id. Like it's, it's just, yeah, <laughs> we, we, we've had an interesting time, I think, personality wise uh, in number 10 over the past few years. Peter. This is a society where you can't rely on prompt cancer treatment from the NHS if you get lung cancer. You can't rely on quick tre treatment in A&E if an XL bully bites you. Is banning things ultimately a distraction from the really important stuff? Um, I don't think I agree with that. I think I can envision a society where you can have functioning NHS and still ban consumer products which harm the environment and young children. So um they're things you wouldn't necessarily place in opposition to each other. I mean, I think I come at this from a slightly different perspective. I, I, I tend these days, having spent the last six years writing about the Grenfell Tower fire, to see see a lot of our politics through a different lens. And, you know, we spent sort of 15 or 20 years being one of the few countries in Europe to fail to bring in bans on combustible construction products and, and then ended up with a, a big cladding fire and a huge building safety crisis. And I think sometimes the sort of... Uh, debate around limiting red tape and the nanny state is actually used by companies who want to keep the rules on their um, business practices and, and, and regulations that would impact their bottom line as light as possible. Um, so I think sometimes the, the conversation around do we ban this or that is a bit of a sideshow in, in, a, in a broader question about what sort of economy do we want? Do we, do we want a, a, a totally free market or do we want one where we do place levels of restriction on products for safety reasons and, and, and for quality reasons. And I think I think a lot of the time people would actually lean more towards actually if it's unsafe, ban it, than sometimes politicians would think. Um, so yeah, but I, I appreciate my views on it are kind of clouded by a very specific specialist interest. So perhaps I'm out of step with, with most of the population. No, it's a good point that banning things isn't always about personal freedom at all. Often it's about, as you say, safety. Hannah, there's no pushback from Labour on this. Wes Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary, is all in favour of the vape and cigarette bans. Is Britain a country that's pretty much at ease with bans? Do we like to feel the firm smack of the nanny state? So Streeting is behind all of this and not just this. He's really in favour of banning nitrous oxide, laughing gas and junk food advertising and all of those things. And actually, as Peter just touched on, you know, Labour um, 
an incoming Labour government would ban sale of petrol cars again, which is something that Sunak pulled away from. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of part of a broader thing about how you use the state, uh, the officers of state to kind of manage what kind of um, economy we are. But actually, I think you were onto something earlier when you talked about um, this all being a substitute for real politics. So I'm not sure it's that we love to be, you know, smacked on the behind by the nanny state. It's that as a, as a whole, I d we don't like being told what to do, but the general polling does suggest that people do support these bans. And I think it's because we feel really adrift at the moment. So when there's no kind of functioning administration, when everything feels chaotic, um, like it's falling apart at the seams and Sunak's been constantly dragged out to do his 11th press conference on Rwanda because he hasn't got anything else to say, that the people support bands like this because they're desperate for some sort of leadership and it feels like leadership it feels like something effective it's decision making it's making choices on behalf of the population that you represent i also think that the british people do quite like rebelling as well so if something's banned it kind of gives you that frisson of like well you know when when the smoking ban came in in 2005 7 i can't remember when it was exactly mid 2000s I uh, took up smoking again for the first time in ages because everybody was going out of the pub and I wanted to be involved with those conversations. So I just started lighting up again. Um, I managed to kick it quite quickly afterwards. But I think there is something in that as well, that kind of tension. So I'm not sure that banning things always works. Sometimes it can make things seem a little bit more attractive again. Was the pandemic part of that? There was one weird period when you could take a glass of booze away from a pub and then you couldn't because people might have gathered out together outside to drink it. So the government decided it was a bad idea. <laughs> but the principle of being able to ban things quite quickly. Yeah, just deciding. Yeah, that's just it, deciding. It. Was, well, was widely accepted, really, wasn't it? Well, I think people got used to the idea of being told how to behave. Uh, and, and they accepted that at that point in time, it was part of the government's responsibility to tell us how to behave. So everyone swallowed that. And then actually rolling back from that is more difficult. It's funny how cult culture develops. And I think that I think you're right. I think that did occur. Keir Starmer says he's up for a fight on nanny state issues, yes. although some of that is about getting kids to brush their teeth at school, which doesn't feel to me like a major I mean, that's, infringement also, of their liberty. The thing is, it's about teaching them how to brush their teeth yeah. at school. So it's actually not even forcing someone. It's giving someone a lesson, yeah. which I personally roundly support. I, I would have been delighted if someone had made my kids brush their teeth at school. <laughs> exactly. It would have taken the so pressure off a bit. You, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. He treads an interesting line, though, between a respect for human rights, which kind of loosely understood ought to mean the right to do stupid things to yourself occasionally, and the slightly sinister cop persona that Private Eye likes to yeah. give him. How authoritarian is he? Um, well, I don't think we'll know the answer to that until the decision's already made. So it's it's hard to say right now, but I think what it's quite clear is that he is someone who believes in the responsibilities of the state as well as the rights of the individual and, and quite firmly believes that that is an important part of the job of Prime Minister, of um, uh, a, a future Labour administration. So there are some on the right, Liz Truss, who would consider that an authoritarian approach, but I think the majority of the electorate wouldn't consider that authoritarian. So it's how, how do you use that term? Um, you know, so, as I said, some bans are a very good idea, petrol cars. So that shows leadership. And I think one hopes that he'll prove himself to be on that quite sensible side. But we won't know. Really, will we? That's the reality of it. Well, it's not given that these bans stay in place. I think New Zealand banned under-14s from ever buying cigarettes, yeah. and they've actually repealed that. So mm. it's not happening anymore with a different government. Is there anything you'd like to ban? So many things. I oh, my God. Okay, I am banning SUVs. You do not need to have a car that big at any oh point God, ever. Yes. Yes. Um, I am also banning playing loud music on public transport without headphones. Yes, thank yeah, you no, very yeah, much. No, no, obviously. List, yeah. um, but as a treat, I would unban it. I would allow bars and cafes to apply for a license to allow smoking if they want to, because I think actually, so I think Spain had that for a bit, which I found incredibly charming, where you had like smoking and non-smoking bars, which I thought was actually great. So yes, I'm banning two things, but unbanning one for balance. How about you, Hannah? Um, well, top of mind, absolutely, was people who listen to music or, <laughs> or watch social media, yeah, watch TikTok, TikTok with, on, mm. on, on public transport without headphones or even just walking down the street. Mm. It's such an infringement of everybody's right to a shared space. I find it utterly infuriating. I realise that sounds makes me sound like an absolute grandmother. I don't care. Uh, I believe that 
uh, everybody should be able to share a space in peace. And uh, yeah, that's that's top of my list. Also, this is a, a slightly niche one. I would ban any kind of um, sound effects during adverts, particularly when you're listening on headphones that include knocks, doorbells or sirens. <laughs> Scare the hell out of me. And I think that it's always at the wrong decibel level to everything else you're listening to. Um, and I've been caught out on that. What about unbanning, though? Because we've been banning things for left, left, right and centre. Is there something that we should unban? Like unban entirely? Because, again, I think a little bit of smoking indoors as a treat should be allowed. I just um, think all drugs should be unbanned. Oh, yeah, 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 uh, big, big. So, I yeah. mean, that, I think that's generally consensus among most people on this podcast. That all it's, of them. Uh, mm. uh, yes, yes. Mm. I think that there are, you know, um, ultimately... It just creates a dangerous market. It should absolutely be regulated. And it is a personal choice issue. Uh, and, uh, and you know, the right care and support should be available for people suffering from addiction. And the reason it isn't is because it's criminalised. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimise how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Next this week, one of the reasons why older people tend to support the Tories is because they're far more likely to own a home. The house price boom has served them well. For younger people, it's a disaster. But what could Labour do about it? And what are the pitfalls that await a new government? We've got two housing specialists on the panel today, and we're going to get into the weeds of the housing crisis. Peter Apps has written a book about the Grenfell fire, as he mentioned. Peter, you were warning about combustible cladding even before the fire in 2017. And one of the consequences of that awful event was to shed a bit of light on the iniquities of leasehold tenancies. People were trapped in flats that they couldn't sell because the flats had dangerous cladding. Where are we now on leasehold? Well, I mean, it's been a, as you said, it was actually something that was sort of bubbling up in the political agenda before the Grenfell Tower fire and has continued to sort of merge with that story since. There is a major piece of legislation coming through the House of Commons, albeit slowly, remains only at report stage. That will make some changes to the leasehold system, but it it won't ban it. It will ban it for houses only, but not for flats. It takes away some of the kind of most outrageous things about leasehold like ground rents and really expensive lease extensions and these sort of 99 year leases you can get where suddenly you realize there's only 80 years left on it and your 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 property value cuts in half and all of those things are things that are welcomed by campaigners things that people have asked for for a long time um but in terms of an overall kind of overhaul of this system and a replacement with something that's that's fairer and and more like the systems they have overseas. It's not really been brave enough to put anything forward. And I think that that's a problem because even if you can kind of soften the edges of leasehold, when you've got this arrangement where you've got a freehold company that's that's got very little accountability, you end up with the problems that we've seen over the last few years of people not really having that much control over what happens to their, their home, but ultimately paying for it. Yeah, it smooths some of the edges in, in a way that will be helpful, but it's a stepping stone to, to what is going to have to be bigger reform at some point. It was Michael Gove's intention to ban it, wasn't it? So why did he cave in on, because most leaseholds are flats, aren't they? Why did he cave in on it? There's been a failure to kind of imagine a world of flat ownership without leasehold, basically. of How do you, because you, you would you get rid of leasehold, you, you still need some management of a high-rise building or, or a, a, any block of flats. You know, at some point, the lifts are going to need to be replaced. The, the, the roof is going to need some work. The communal areas will need painting. And you need a system by which that, that work can be done and commissioned and so on. And so 
really you need to look to to common hold systems and and right to manage where people kind of run their own block together but bringing those systems in is actually quite it's, it's going to be quite different if it ever does happen the, the 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 responsibilities and processes of owning a flat will be different to 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 what they are now i think that was what gove was initially looking at it's what the law commission had recommended but I think for a government that has lots of battles being fought on other fronts, they felt that that was just too big a change to the current system to really contemplate. So they went for something smaller. But like I say, unfortunately, in going for something smaller, they leave the mechanisms that make leaseholds so unpalatable untouched. And what happened to the Renters' Reform Bill? That was supposed to make it harder for landlords to evict tenants, wasn't it? Yeah, so I think we're going right back to gosh, uh, spring twenty nineteen. Now the, the the government has had a political commitment to ban no fault evictions. Um, so just just having your home taken away at the end of your private rent tenancy, kind of regardless of whether you've paid the rent and kept the property in a good condition, and that is now part of the, the bill, the, the the renters' reform bill. But like you say, its progress through Parliament has been very very slow, and we may run out of time before the next election to actually get that through. You know, that, that bill brings in a few other things as well, but it doesn't give renters an, an, an awful lot of protection against, say, sort of sudden rent rises or um, a, a lengthy notice period if the landlord wants to sell the home and they need to move out because of that. And and as a result, the, the impact of it that people are hoping for, which is that kind of real sense of security as a private rented tenant, might not actually be what the bill delivers. And we've waited so long for it to come into force that... Um, I think that that's people are hoping for something quite big, and uh, it, it, in some ways, it's 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 just changing the legal processes by which someone is evicted, rather than giving them real meaningful security of tenure and and rights to stay in their home. Marie, where do you live? Uh, I live in London. And what's it been like renting in London over the past decade or so? Not good, <laughs> Ros. It has not been good. Uh, no, so I well, so I've been renting in London since 2009 and yeah I've lived in something like 11 flats I think it's it's been a journey so I, I I've got enough stories to kind of like finish the podcast on so like, <laughs> there's a guy who we rented a flat from once and we found out he didn't actually work for the landlords at all we think or like there was a weird thing and anyway he actually took uh, four months of our of our rent money so this was years ago uh, but never gave it to the landlord because instead he fled to Morocco used the money to buy drugs and try and smuggle the drugs to Greece so the actual landlords found him rotting away in a jail in Greece and we were like, ah, okay. And 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 our money is like, yeah. And then to be fair, like, we got really lucky. The actual landlords were like, that was not your fault. You do not have to somehow find four months rent again. And so I would say that that was definitely, uh, that was great. That um, I had a flat where we could only ever um, pay rent in cash in envelopes. And the one time I can't remember there'd been a problem with my um, card or my bank account. And I said, actually, just the one time can I pay uh, by bank transfer and they were like nope <laughs> just no no just ne- never ever send us any cash by bank is that great that that it's fills me with confidence flag, isn't it? yeah. yeah um etc but again yeah I, I could go on but no l- luckily uh recently i did manage to find a flat but uh the process took between me replying to the ad and me actually moving into the flat took six weeks and i would say it was aching to the hunger games because i went to a viewing and there were eight of us um and the woman said okay so this is you know there's eight of you here you've all received a very long form you have to fit in the first three people to fit in the form and send it back to me We'll go to the second round. And then of those three, Jesus. I'll email you back. And then, yeah, of those three, the first person to get their references back to me will get the flat. So I had, because it was during the day, I had to pretend I had to go back to work. So as I can't stay at the viewing, sorry. Um, and I ran back home, <laughs> filled in that speed, filled in the form, sent it. And then I carried my laptop with me for days, waiting for the moment they would ask for the references. That moment arrived when I was actually, I was clicking collecting some earrings from Mango on Oxford Street (laughs) and I got the email and I sat down on the floor of Mango on Oxford Street, (laughs) opened my laptop, put internet via my phone and like did everything. Anyway, so I got the flat. But yeah, I I think we can all agree that was a a very dignified uh, process, which I really enjoyed as a reasonably high earning young professional. Uh, (laughs) Do you think you'll stay in London if you have to carry on renting? Oh, yes. Annoyingly, yes. But I, I, and I do think being in my 30s, like, it is an interesting stage of life where you can tell that. And I think there's clearly no wrong answer, but people have to make a choice between do they put more emphasis on the place they live in or the city they live in or like the, the place in the place, I guess. And you know, some of them are like, actually, I'd rather live somewhere that's a bit less exciting, but have a big house and a garden and stuff. Some people are like, I'd rather stay in a flat, but be in a big city. And I'm 
definitely the latter. And I think, which I'm quite happy about because um, I remember my dad when I was about 16 and we moved to the suburbs said, oh, you'll understand when you're older, when you're an adult. And I'm like, ha ha, 16 years so fast, dad. And no, we should have stayed in the smaller place in the centre of town. So booyah. Hannah, when we think about the housing shortage, the reflex is to blame NIMBYs. Is that fair? Um, well, look, I'm not going to stand here and be a, you know, advocate of nimbyism, obviously. Um, but nimbies themselves aren't really the issue. Uh, it's the, the domino effect that their pressure points have. So you end up with a lot of two-faced MPs who say one thing on the national stage because they fully understand the size of the problem, the severity of the housing emergency. Uh, they stand up, talk about a national solution, and then immediately go and impose development in their own constituency to cover their asses. Um, it's a form of political spinelessness that I detest. That is in, in itself a form of the heart of the problem, that we don't have the leadership to tackle it. Um, but it's also about planning policy, which has been insufficient for a long period of time. I do think that both parties were likely to see a Labour government in future, but both parties do understand that planning has been an issue. Of course, more recently, it's about mortgage costs affecting private rented numbers because um, landlords are selling up in record numbers because of the pressure on mortgages. It's about emergency accommodation and homelessness, which is breaking council funding. It is incredibly complex. Um, so it's not just people waving placards at the end of their road that's at the heart of it, but that failure to take any kind of moral leadership over that pressure is a major problem. This week, the Office for National Statistics said that there will be 74 million people living in Mm. the UK by 2036 if the trends in net migration continue. What kinds of housing are they going to need? Because I imagine it's quite different from the housing that we actually have. Well, I mean, we need more of almost every type of housing. So, I mean, social housing is the obvious one. We're massively uh, shortage of social housing. There's already a million families on the waiting list. Um, Of course, we're going to see that rise as the population rises, but we're short of everything. And particularly homes like retirement and extra care housing, we're going to have a higher proportion of the population getting older. We're going to need adaptable homes that deal with changes in physical circumstance, you know, disability and so on. Extra care housing for people who, need, who have extra needs. Um, you know, this all needs to be planned out and managed centrally. I do think that this is not an issue where devolution works very well. Um, On the whole, I'm generally in support of localism and devolution of powers, but on housing, it has failed so fundamentally over so many years and becomes subject to nimbyism in that way in local communities that I think just needs to be taken control of at the centre. Marie, speaking of social housing, the Conservatives put out an ad yesterday promising British homes for British people. What did that actually mean? Um, it, oh God, I think it, it's one of those things that actually worries me slightly because it was just like really not that long ago. It was just cranks talking about this on Twitter. I will not name the tr- cranks. They don't deserve to be named. But but it was very much just like some guys on Twitter going, oh, like why are there so many brown people in social housing? Um, So yeah, it feels quite striking that about a month later, number 10 is announcing something on that. Uh, the policy is not as... Like, it's definitely not good, but it's definitely not as horrid as the poster made it seem. So essentially, um, social housing applicants are going to be required to demonstrate a connection to the UK for at least 10 years and their like, specific local area for at least two years. So depending on, you know, sort of like what, where they want to apply. So it's, it's mostly just that. But again, it's mostly a consultation at this stage. So I'm not convinced that anything will actually happen. So it's, it's very much government by... Uh, by sort of like dodgy PR, I yes, think. Yes, exactly um, that. Because for yeah. me, the most important thing about it is that actually 90% of this is already in place and what isn't in place is disgusting. Mm. So most councils already insist on a five-year local connection. Mm. So, you know, it's, it, this this stuff is already there. Um, you can't get social housing unless you are a British citizen or have the right to remain. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, a kind of point and look over there and distraction technique rather mm. than anything related to the truth um, and hidden in it and I only found this out today and I was really shocked hidden behind all the stuff about you know boo hiss migrants is a load of stuff around the rights to housing if uh, for various other issues for example if you have a conviction of antisocial behavior in the past hmm. I am appalled that they're starting to tinker with people's rights to security especially when you're looking at you know rehabilitation from hmm. A difficult start in life. Often people who are, um, who are convicted of antisocial behaviour have had like the absolute worst start in life. They're often like older teenagers. Mm. And to completely 
you know, remove somebody's right to social housing because of that. Yeah, that was going to really help them is make yeah. them homeless. Like it's, and what's yeah, going to um, cost the state more? Is it providing yeah. somebody with a secure home from which they can be supported by every other service around them mm. to find meaningful, uh, you know, path through life? Or is it going to be to create a, a very high risk of homelessness, emergency accommodation, higher chance of uh, offending, drug use? Is it turning into illegal every work other to get money in? Yeah. In the, to the state. I, I'm so angry about this, um, but I've been very pleased to see that every housing organisation in the country has come together and campaigned quite publicly against it. You know, they have to they have to lobby, they have to have relationships with ministers. They've really given up on the Tories now. <laughs> They've turned very publicly against them and it's a delight to see. Yeah, because the whole point of anti-social behaviour orders was not to give people a criminal record or something that would really damage them in the future, but just to stop them doing whatever yeah. they were doing that was very antisocial. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the definition of antisocial behaviour has kind of slightly morphed and changed since the kind of Blair rights and responsibilities when ASBOs first came in. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, it's it's just... Gross. Peter, Labour has been making positive noises about building on low quality land in green belts, not the nice green fields that people enjoy, but land that's essentially derelict. How hard is that going to be in practice? I mean, I think on one level, it's it's not going to be that hard because there is quite a lot of that land around. I mean, it's, it's something that's often confused by actually quite a lot of politicians when they talk about housing that the Greenbelt is a planning designation that's supposed to prevent urban sprawl and Greenfield is a nice grassy area where you might like to go and walk your dog. So in in those Greenbelt areas, there are plenty of places which are brownfield, old car parks, disused industrial sites. I think that finding land like that and hopefully land quite close to sort of existing public transport links and so on where we could build more housing will be quite easily done and 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 provide hopefully sort of pressure valve for our kind of inner cities where where we're increasingly running out of space to build new homes i think the problem that they'll have is that they will run into the the political problem that the conservatives have faced every time they've tried to liberalize planning laws in areas like that which is enormous local opposition. I mean, it's, it's cost the Conservatives, directly cost the Conservatives at by-elections. That will happen to Labour as well if they do form a government and try and bring these things through. And as we've seen with the Conservatives, as soon as they are punished at the poll box for it, they'll probably retreat because that's that's how the um, the, the political incentives work in this country. And so I'm, I, I think that it's a good policy. I think it's, it's, a, it's precisely something that we need to look at doing. I'd actually go further. I'd, I'd like to see so much of the country is is used for, for agricultural land, for for, for cattle and, and dairy farming. We're increasingly using less of that, and converting some of it to housing would be a great idea. So I, I would I would like to look, see them look beyond the grey belt, actually, as they call it. Um, but I think that they're they're either going to have to face down angry voters in those constituencies, or they're going to capitulate to them. And recent history both of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party suggest the smart money would be on capitulating. As Hannah was saying, there's a general agreement that we need more social housing. But the trouble is that councils who might normally build it are broke, literally broke in some cases. Who's going to build the social housing? What's the incentive for them? It's an interesting thing in the the, the framing of that question because the... um, one of the major reasons councils are going broke is because of the the amount they're spending on temporary accommodation for their homeless families. And so their financial pressures are actually an incentive for them to build more social housing because the more social housing they, they can create in their local area, the less reliant they are on private sector temporary accommodation, which is what is decimating budgets, particularly in the southeast and in London. You wouldn't necessarily look at like a, a local authority budget to fund the national social housing programme, which is what we're trying to do. I think with that, the brave question that Labour need to, to ask themselves is is how we recognise social housing as a on the national balance sheet. It's not like revenue spending, like spending money on housing benefit or or paying for medicines and, and, and nurses' salaries in hospitals. It's, it's, it's capital expenditure. You're building something which is an asset eventually, which the state owns, which produces an income stream. It's like building a railway, HS2, for example. And if you were to look at it in that way on the Treasury's balance sheet, you'd suddenly start using state borrowing to, to fund it and, and be relaxed about that. It's not a Liz Truss unfunded tax cut. You get something at the end of it that pays that that borrowing back. And so 
I think we just need to be brave as we were in the aftermath of World War II when we were far less wealthy a country than we are now and, and in a very difficult financial situation with huge debts to pay back to say that actually this is an investment in the future that will pay itself back and, and, and build a, a more stable country and actually grow the economy. You know, a, a local authority on their own with, with their budget pressures and the, the, the rules and their borrowing aren't going to be able to do that. That's a decision that the Labour need to make when they take control of the Treasury if they win the next election. Hannah, do you think a new generation of Labour MPs, if we do have a new generation of Labour MPs later this year, would they guess it? Because they'll owe their seats to younger voters. And this is a major, major issue for those younger voters. Yeah, I think it's I don't think it's just actually about um, their debt, if you want to put it that way, to a younger voting uh, public. It's also that they will get it because they will most likely know people, be related to people, have friendships and so on, who are directly affected by the housing crisis. I mean, we, we were discussing on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about under 35s. Now, m- their most likely housing situation is to be living with their parents. Um, now, obviously, that's not everybody under 35. And we do have a privileged political class, you know, so you know, it's most likely to be people who are home owners who enter parliament but they will still have they will know people who are directly affected and 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 so i think that is actually quite meaningful that up until now there has been a detachment and there've been far too few people who have had any experience of life in social housing at all um and that's probably still the case let's be honest but because the housing crisis has grown so much it's become so much more than than the question of our social housing stock it, it's become every facet that Now, I think they do understand the severity of it, um, I hope. So I do think that there will be an urgency uh, in the the discussions that we haven't seen previously. Let's talk about new towns because they sound fantastic. Far away from NIMBYs, hopefully. There's no need to fight over every planning application, as you might do over on the green belt, as we just discussed. Are they the silver bullet that some people claim? I think a lot depends here on how you go about setting up a new town. There was an extraordinarily successful program of new towns in the 50s and 60s, which which built places like, you know, most famously Milton Keynes and Stevenage, but there was a dozen or so new towns built around the country. Those were very centrally planned and centrally delivered. We set up new towns corporations, which, which got ownership of all of the land, um, were able to kind of push the development through and then take the profit effectively from the uplift that turning that, you know, loose collection of fields into a new city created, say, leased out the commercial space and so on. And we also put massive amounts of social housing in them. You know, one of the new towns, I think Peter Lee had 97% social housing when it was built. And that changes a lot because it means you're not waiting for a, a private sector developer to figure out whether or not they're going to build five homes this year, sell them, bank that receipt, and then build 10 homes next year and very, very slowly drip feed the planned homes through onto the market. You just roll it out and build it and and, and move people in. And those, those were enormously successful. We've tried continually in the 21st century to repeat that success in places like Ebbsfleet. We've never really got past the stage of sort of making up some some nice master plans on Photoshop and, and rolling a few bulldozers and, and diggers around Um you know, the actual houses have been so slow to appear that it's, it's, a, it's a reasonably safe bet that they never will. And I think the difference is that we've asked the private sector to do it and that the, the, the upfront investment that's needed, that the master planning, the control and, and fundamentally the social housing that makes those places one function as communities, but also areas that we can rapidly develop. That's something that requires public um, involvement and public investment, the, the models of private sector house building just don't work for it. So I think that the new town idea that Labour has is good if what they mean is the 1950s and 1960s style of new towns. And it will be more of the same if what they mean is what they tried to do in government last time, which is is build up an area like Ebbsfleet. What's the first thing Labour should do in power? It's a massive job. Clearly, we just talked about what a massive job it is, and they've got a lot of things to tackle. But what would you like to see them do first? So actually, this is it is directly re- related to social housing, but it's not what you're going to expect me to say because it's it's actually not a housing policy. But I, the first thing I would want to see is an end to the two-child benefit rule because it directly affects loads of families living in social housing. It affects um, you know the money that's available around housing benefit as well uh, because the, the kind of universal credit package that comes into a family is affected by it. Um, it, it is entrenching poverty. It's creating... Um, 
crises across every part of uh, our, our society that the social housing sector also picks up and supports and and, and and it's wrong morally too. So that's the first thing I'd like to see. Although we have, of course, heard that they're not going to be doing that. But I think they're wrong. And if we keep talking about that, who knows? Maybe there'll be some movement. We might change their minds. Who knows? Pete? I mean, obviously, like Hannah, I'd like to see them commit to a new generation of social rented housing. But a quicker, smaller thing than that, I'd like to see them apply the new... Um, rules around quick fixes to disrepair and penalties if you don't do it to private rented landlords as well as social landlords. I don't understand why if you live in a private rented home with serious levels of damp and mould that's affecting your health, uh, you shouldn't have the same rights to have that fixed as you should if you live in the social housing sector. So I think they should stand up to private landlords, stand up to the private landlord lobby and and make them fix the homes if there's a problem for the, the tenants who pay their the rent. And actually, that's been put into law in Wales, so maybe we should see an extension of that to the whole of England. Yeah, and I'm going to fess up here. I am a private landlord, and I think it's a really good idea. So not all of us are evil. (laughs) Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's the end of the show, so it's time for the stories that went under the radar this week. Marie, what have you identified? So I feel like, you know, we spent so long, including on this podcast, talking about the Online Safety Act and the Online Safety Bill and, you know, will it, won't it, etc. And then obviously it kind of did become an act uh, from a bill um, and we stopped talking about it. But no, so actually today uh, is the day that it came in, like some bits of it came into force, uh, which means that actually those who cyber flash or share deep fakes of other people can now face criminal prosecution, uh, including a hefty sentence of up to five years if found guilty, which I think is quite a good thing. God, like, this is, yeah, my... Marie Chaley's for Rishi Sunak episode somehow. But no, no, I do think, and I, I didn't agree with everything uh, in the Online Safety Act, but I think that that was very much a good thing. So yeah, so there you go. No longer, can no longer do deep fakes or cyber flashing and get away with it. Crack down on these criminals. Peter, have you got an under the radar for us? Uh, yeah, I do. Unfortunately, not the happiest one, but um, we had a fire this week in a block of flats in Wembley. Um it was clad with combustible materials, both the, the, the landlord of that flat and the um, local MP and the developer of it all knew that and were arguing over who, who should be taking it off and how quickly. And on, on Monday night, a, a very serious fire, which 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 could easily have, have claimed a number of lives. And I think it just underscores something that not enough people know, which is that we, we still haven't managed to get a lot of this stuff off the walls of buildings in the, the six and a half years since Grandfall and um. Yeah, so it's not not the happiest thing to think about, but I think um, if more people were aware of that problem, we'd probably stand a better chance of fixing it. I wanted to nominate Northern Ireland for Under the Radar this week, and my editor rightly pointed out that it is all over the front pages, of, you know, on the BBC website at the moment because of the deal that's finally being done. We hope at Stormont to get Stormont back, but it has been under the radar because Stormont has been out of action for nearly two years. That's a major part of the UK, which basically is just politics stopped functioning. You couldn't make decisions anymore. And we just kind of lived with that. And that was cool because it was Northern Ireland. And the shameful way in which Northern Ireland has always been an afterthought with Brexit, right from the Leave campaign onwards, nobody paid it enough attention, is, I think, ample justification for making it under the radar. So I am going to stick with that one. (laughs) Hannah, how about you? So mine is a report, it's some polling carried out by a think tank called the Fairness Foundation who care about, you know, um, fairness across society. And it was looking at people's attitudes uh, to inequality. And they kind of don't stack up. I find it really interesting. So about half of people say that they think that wealth inequality in Britain is a major problem for society, for politics, for the way we function, the lot. But only a third say that health 
inequality is an issue and only a third say that educational inequalities are a problem, as if they're not linked. Like the level of cognitive dissonance that it takes to not understand that it's wealth inequality that underlies every, you know, and every inequality is, is quite fascinating. And it just, it, it hasn't been reported very much. And I thought it was quite interesting because it, if, once you start drill, drilling down, it, you get to the point that people really don't understand uh, that the fact that we have not equaled the playing field for those who, who have a lot and those who have a little is creating most of the problems that we spend all of our state, you know, our tax income on. Polling is just fundamentally so difficult because obviously it's incredibly important what people think and want. And yet a lot of them don't really know much about the subject they're being asked about yeah. when you ask them about anything. And I guess that, that that also makes it useful because that kind of hunch feeling, so much in politics does go on that. You know, it's it's too little on the nitty gritty of the, the that why why have uh, the Tories put out today that awful ad about British homes for British people because the hunch on that is what people are responding to. So um, it matters for that reason, but it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't really stack up. And that's the show. Thanks to Hannah. Thank you, Marie. Thank you. And our guest this week, Peter. Thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. We'll see you next time. Hello and all the thanks in the world to our brand new backers, Daniel Toyer, Nick and Stephanie Morgan. Big shout out and welcome from me to Sarah G, Charlie and Karen. And finally, welcome aboard from me to Richard Johnson. And hello to a couple of former backers who have returned to the fold. R. Boyd and Gavin Bennett, welcome back. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was written and presented by Roz Taylor with Anna Fern, Marie LeConte, and guest Peter Apps. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and Robin Lieburn. Video production by Kieran Leslie and Mike Bollin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers. I noticed this week that according to the Retail Price Index, the price of tea has stopped rising so fast. It had doubled since 2005. Expensive habit. Maybe the government should ban the stuff for own good. (laughs) So I wanted to ask the panel what small drug or treat they use to break up the working day. By the time you listen to this, it'll probably be February, which for my money is a far worse month than January. Hannah, we both used to work in big newsrooms with endless free tea and coffee. Now we're mostly working at home. Have your habits changed? Well, it wasn't just tea and coffee in the large newsrooms. Ros and I both used to work at The Guardian, actually at the same time, but we didn't know each other then. Uh, Cake was the big crack there. It was, honestly, you could put on three stone in a week. It was phenomenal. I had to have a tooth out at one point. (laughs) That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week without ads and a day early, then why not sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month? You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else? every Monday morning, tasty merchandise and advance offers for live events. Thanks for listening and see you next week.